0: Author and former priest Brennan Manning wrote, Ragmuffins are simple, direct, and honest. Their speech is unaffected. They are slow to claim God told me. As they make their way through the world, they bear wordless prophetic witness. Manning's ragamuffin is a quiet prophet. But we know prophets come in all shapes, sizes, and volumes. The Old Testament is replete with loud prophets, some with their own books, like Isaiah and Jeremiah, and those without, like Elijah and Elisha. We hear the word prophet, and some may think it's a person who foretells the future. No, a prophet is first and foremost a teller of truth to power. One who speaks truth to powerful people, powerful institutions, powerful systems. Now, such a truth-teller may foretell the future, but the biblical prophets are more God's spokesmen or spokeswoman who call out the idolaters, the unjust, the greedy. Ezekiel, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, Malachi, and more do just this. Modern-day Christian prophets are lauded by the faithful and secular individuals alike, from Frederick Douglass to Dietrich Bonhoeffer, Martin Luther King Jr., and even Pope Francis. Like the prophets of Scripture, these individuals spoke or continued to speak truth to power, calling all to justice, to a renewal of social contracts, and at times merely to lament on behalf of the oppressed. Nuance is a podcast of The Collaborative where we wrestle together about living our Christian faith at work. Each season, we will take a compelling aspect of our faith in the public square, apply it to our work, and seek nuanced answers from Christian faith. This season is about the public square itself, particularly the public square at work, and a square we know in 2022 to be fraught with controversy, impassioned debate, damaged relationships, even divided churches. Today's episode is about prophetic voice and the prophetic voice all Christ followers have, whether they embrace it or not, and particularly prophetic voice at work. As Christ's followers, we proclaim the death and resurrection of Christ. That, in and of itself, is threatening to people in power and even to our own power of pride and selfishness. The Christian holds a different starting point to creation than the world and believes in a different culmination of time and history. Unlike the world, we profess creeds and we agree to them commonly in worship together. Well, what about after the benediction? Where and what is our prophetic voice in our families, in our neighborhoods, and at work, and do we carry it, in the words of Tim Keller, as a prophetic voice that is, quote, winsome, missional, and gospel-centered? Well, our guest today is Ann Snyder, certainly a prophetic voice in our times through her journalistic excellence. Anne is the editor-in-chief of Comment Magazine, also co-editor of Breaking Ground, Charting Our Future in a Pandemic Year, published in January of this year. She also hosts the podcast, The Whole Person Revolution, and I encourage you to check it out. Join me as my colleague Crossland Stewart and I explore the idea of our prophetic voices at work. My name is Case Thorpe, and welcome to Nuance.
1: Well, thank you again for being with us today. We know you're really busy, but greatly appreciate it. Um, and maybe we could just start by you telling us a little bit about yourself. And in particular, how did you get interested in journalism? And, you know, you're in a a really interesting um, sector of journalism. And so maybe you can speak to that as well.
2: Yeah, I'm happy to. So the brief version is... Um... I was born in Boston, but shortly thereafter, as a young child, moved with my family to Hong Kong and lived there for quite a few years, and then Australia, and we traveled quite a bit around Asia and that part of the world in those years. So kind of fairly cross-cultural. My mother had grown up in the Amazon jungle in Peru, and I just mentioned that to say there was always this kind of cultural backdrop that was very sensuous, like lots of music, deep interest in people and the idiosyncrasies of human beings and how we're all shaped by culture. And that just was like water and oxygen. I didn't know any different. I I just, I think we were always um, as a family uh, actually discussing like the different cultural colors in a place and how that shapes people's moral sensibilities and uh, sort of leadership styles and all those kinds of things. So I couldn't have expressed that to you when I was nine years old, but that was just kind of the <laughs> air that I breathe, which in many ways I, when I interview people now in a journalistic capacity, I like I quietly feel this wink of gratitude that that was our dinner table conversational life and that we were breathing air that, you know, we were often, um, we were not like others, but that is its own wonderful experience where you're sort of this resident alien. Yes. Um, I came to faith in high school back in the States, New England. It happened to be aggressively secular high school. Um, and that's sort of its own story, but that was a very real conversion experience. And so I decided to, um, apply to this crazy place. No one in my particular context had ever heard of called Wheaton college in Illinois, (laughs) because I was drawn to the integration of sort of faith and learning and what that might mean. And, um, and I wound up at Wheaton of total culture shock but uh, it was own wonderful experience for someone coming from a totally different subculture and educational background um and felt had never felt so excited by learning i think there was this shared love of questions of why and no question was a scary question you were encouraged to doubt there was it was very heterogeneous politically actually which some people don't know um And it was just an exciting place to explore learning in a very thirsty way and explore truth because you did have a sense that people had fundamental loves in common. Um, Mm. so in that experience, I was both, I wound up as a philosophy major, but I had a very, I kind of date my vocational annunciation moment to, um, a hillside ditch in Honduras. I, I did this sort of year long preparatory trip to help just build like a water system in a, in a rural village. Um, and at that point, partly because of my mother growing up in Peru and and a very amazing language program in high school, my Spanish was very, very good, uh, better than my American colleagues. And I just a- accidentally wound up, not accidentally, but I inadvertently was placed in this role of translator for a few weeks. And it wasn't just linguistic. I felt this like layering of all the intangible, I guess, EQ that's required to translate a little bit between cultures and play this middle person, even spiritual discernment. It was sort of Protestants and Catholics coming together, uh, hugely different. You sort of have to be a lay anthropologist, hugely different norms around marriage, like the guy I was working with digging ditches from this village. Um, he had fathered three children through three different women, women, and the third one, and you know, I was like an innocent Wheaton college, 19 year old, <laughs> you know, um, <laughs> you can imagine what I mean by that. And I'm like learning about this totally other life of someone my same age. And, you know, you get married when you sort of steal the bride at night and, and, and consummate the mar- the, the wedding somewhat consummate the relationship and that's marriage and that, and so I'm anyway, so in all of this, I'm try I find myself having this very, uh profound
0: realization.
2: And it sounds cliche to say now, but I just said, I, it was almost like, I don't know what this, how this will manifest career wise, but I just know wherever I go in life, I will somehow have to be a bridge builder. Uh, Mm. I feel like that is where I really come alive. It's where I'm least conscious of myself. I just sort of lose all sense of self, which I think is often a good sign of calling. Um, and, kind of exhausted out of trying to, the joy of, of finding worlds, start to understand one another that otherwise would feel all these mm. barriers. So little did I know 20 years, 20 plus years later, we would be in such a barrier filled era <laughs> across many different lines of, of difference. Um, but, um, so fast forward still further, I wind up, I had been told throughout college, you should write, you should be a writer the writers I knew seemed to not enjoy people. They seem to enjoy like long hours in closets and libraries. And I was like, that's not me, you know? Um, so, but little by little, I, 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 uh, I wind up, so I mentioned the philosophy major with Honduras is I, I was torn always between wanting to sort of serve at this grassroots level. And yet Mm. I did love the large questions and I did love the life of the philosophical mind. Um, so I always thought I couldn't bring them together. And I kind of at first chose one, I wound up getting a job at a think tank. It was a fairly cerebral place in DC. And just had to sort of grit my teeth. It was a totally foreign world, uh, more political, right of center. Um, it was the first time I sort of saw religious conviction and politics merge too cleanly. I thought coming from mm-hmm. at that point my Wheaton background, which had taught me to to not just like marry um, theology with like current American political ends. And um, but I, the wonderful thing about the role, I was a research assistant for a foreign policy program. Um, their theory of change at the time, this would have been mid 2000s, was to y- you affect culture and you ultimately affect policy towards whatever ends you want to affect by reaching media. So we would often host events, we would throw right, events right. and invite all sorts of journalists in. So that was my exposure to journalists, and I just thought they could be 70 years old and still going at it, and they were not mm. bored. They <laughs> were so they were the best people to talk to at a party. They were so. They were like learning something new at at 7 a.m. and teaching the world about it at 5 p.m. And that was just the rhythms. And I just thought that I was like, oh, if I could have a career that allowed me to be a lifelong learner, <laughs> that sounds great. So I kind of went back to prof- like this professorial like echoes in my head, like you should be a writer, you should be a writer. Um, and I'll keep fast forwarding, but basically I kind of found my way to a small magazine called World Affairs and then wound up at the New York Times helping some columnists um, there. And so these are all in many ways, wonderful breaks. Um, and I still, I was sort of seeing the, I, I wasn't attracted to hard news reporting, but I was again, trying to, how do I bring like a conceptual mind? My father always joked when I graduated college, like, Anne Real, you should try to get some hard skills because you're really high on concepts and very low on skills. And you're high conceptual, and you know. I was a, and do those pay the bills? Yeah. I exactly. was a religion
0: major and we had buttons that said, I'm a religion major. Would you like paper or plastic?
2: Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. It's like, I just remember him being like, all the things you're actually kind of good at now they're not at all marketable they're not credible yeah. like you're not gonna be able to sell them in any way that's of value to the to the world for like another 20 years so I was like thanks Dad <laughs> I um, but I yeah but I I, I found I I um, I always wanted somehow the written word, the world, the realm of story, the realm of normative opinion, I wanted all of that to sort of come together, and I want it to be of service to real people, real institutions. I was always trying to merge ideas with practice, um, debates with invitational narratives, um, kind of grassroots, often mar- sort of stories from pain and suffering on the margins of our society to um, be... have sort of point the way have have a way of um how do you narrate those stories in a way that actually provide a bit of a moral yeah. compass for the center mm-hmm. uh, not in a way i think you know today someone might hear that and think oh that sounds marxist or whatever it really wasn't out of some ideological uh, uh, impulse it was um i think just a variety of life experiences personal and observational had just taught me there's yeah. something there's something about truth that comes to the fore when it's stripped bare of all the of of the comforts, the complacencies, the power, et cetera. So those were just like impulses in myself. And I discovered this woman, Dorothy mm. Day, who kind of became my first real hero, heroine, um, that I could follow. And you speak about a, a certain kind of a prophet. I, I'm not sure if she would have said that about herself. Most prophets don't say well, that it about is themselves. something that has to be conferred. Um, conferred, yeah. And there was something about, both who she had been before her Catholic conversion, very passionate woman, part of these bohemian communist circles in New York City, very good writer. Um, and then she, you know, somewhat promiscuous, had an abortion or two, suicide attempts, all this. like I didn't identify with all of that, but I did, did identify with sort of this um, hungry mind that had passions to care passions for the world to be mm. made right. Yeah. Um, and the way in which she expressed that in her writing. And then she had her daughter, she brought a baby to term, had her daughter and she has this beautiful line in her, she writes an essay like 45 minutes after the umbilical cord is cut. Cause she noticed all the accounts of childbirth up to date, up to that point had only been written by <laughs> men. And she thought that maybe someone who had actually experienced oh, it. Great. So she writes this beautiful essay and there's some, there's a line at the end. So something like, um, if I had composed the greatest symphony, painted the most beautiful fresco, um, built 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 the greatest cathedral, um, I could not have felt a more exalted creature than when they laid my daughter in my arms, and I mm. just needed someone to worship and adore. So that mm. is like That's the great. beginning, and so wow. so I, to wrap all this up, um, when she w- learning about the ways in which she asked to, to she was ha- she too. In her day late 20 1920s was struggling to integrate seemingly disparate yeah. realms of her love for the poor, love for the masses and her newfound place in the Catholic Church which at that time she felt was quite hier- very hierarch- hierarchical didn't didn't really seem to have um, any overlap with the pain points the the then sort of growing communist movement was pointing out. She just like, had this very alienating time for the yeah. first five years of her life as a Christian, and she prayed in the Basilica very close to us, actually in D.C. She came down for a hunger march, was very discouraged by the sort of more secular um, uh, communist spirit around that march and the utopian, think- utopian thinking, which she thought could only lead to cruelty eventually. And she just prayed in the Basilica, like, please integrate my love for the poor and your church. Like, I don't know where else to go. And the next day she winds up going back to her home in New York and meeting this guy, Peter Morin, who, who introduced, who says, I've read your writing. We're going to start a movement. We're going to do it through creating a newspaper called the Catholic worker and start all these hospitality houses that serve. And this was right before the depression hit. Um, And there was something without, there was something about her, bringing together of hospitality, real-life service and community with writing and a newspaper in her case that really helped spawn a whole kind of Christian labor movement in this country, Mm -hmm. which that I wasn't necessarily drawn as ambitiously towards any sort of movement raising, but I was very drawn to... um, when I'm writing, I never want to be so distant from my subjects that I don't also smell like the smoke from the chestnuts they're eating. Mm. Like there was a sense in which the sensuous nature of her uh, deep embeddedness in, in the lives of those she was also writing about just really compelled me, um, Mm. and felt like Christian journalism really actually at its best. So that kind of sent me off in a whole new direction. And I, I started writing about immigrant stories, which I can, that's sort of its own story, how it got there. And so a lot of my life has been as an adult, um, I think an ongoing search to, uh, never allow one great gift to be partial to allow, um, you know, I think beautiful truths and the greatest questions, have to be explored and there is often a cost to that exploration. And I, and I just, I personally, yes, I, I love to read and I learn a lot from, from reading, but, um, I think the clearest lessons around wisdom and moral formation and things like community health and even our very democracy, et cetera, have come from micro examples on the ground of people who have earned their way and are trying to embody something and not just theorize about it. So I've tried to bring that into everything I do since. Um,
1: Oh, that's great. Well, thank you for sharing all that, because I just love hearing how the Lord orchestrates all the different experiences and interests that we have. And then, you know, whether it's Comment Magazine or your podcast or the other Things that you're involved with today, you can just see the full culmination of those things being utilized, and so um, I just love hearing that. So, thanks for sharing your story well,
0: with us.
2: Oh, well, it's a generous question. Thank you. I for know asking. now
0: why your husband mentions Dorothy Day so much.
2: <laughs> oh yeah, I might have had a tiny role <laughs> in roll. that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah.
0: Well, and you talked about uh, the the power of story. And I mean, the American story right now is a little frayed, and I wonder how historians will write about this time, but just the social upheaval and pandemic, racial tension, and now the Roe v. Wade situation. What's your take on the American story right now?
2: Oh, gosh. Um, could you ask a larger <laughs> question? <laughs> um well, particularly as an yeah, editor, I know then, pe-
0: how do you take America's story at the moment as an editor and edit in a certain direction.
2: Yeah. Um I have a um hopefully we all, you know, have living exemplars in our lives and not just dead ones like Dorothy Day who we can we can run to with our with our consternations, but there is a an exemplar sort of mentor in my life. He's almost 80 years old, um Mac McCarter who uh basically has established a reincarnation of Jane Adam's settlement house movement in a variety of cities, but especially in Shreveport, Louisiana and varying points along the way, as he's watched me and my own vocational life, I think seesaw between these tensions of the large questions I'm trying to address through, a body of writing, my own and others, and sort of curate a certain kind of conversation and my like deep heart for just like using using one's hands and just being in a local, um, local specific area. He's always like, Ann, what is your plumb line? You need a you just need, you need to know what your plumb line is. And he doesn't mean that I don't I'm not sharing that in the context of actually even my own sort of vocational splits I often feel I'm doing. But as it pertains this question, I and this is very fresh, in some ways, fresh thinking for me. Um, I, I think there is, um, there's so many ways to diagnose what's going on in the U S right now. A lot, you know, some people in certain kinds of worlds will, will say, we just don't have a shared narrative anymore, a shared moral narrative of who we are. We are contesting, you know um, I mean, I think there's just a basic set of moral questions that are plaguing everyone where there's, there's, part of why it feels like our wars are so constant and so hot um, is because we have deep disagreements about the nature of what the good is. And I would argue the nature of what the human person is, um, which is a bit more, that's kind of where you you probably do need some like theological voices to come in and at least gently try to shed light on that. Um, But in the US context, and I feel this sharply because Comment is published by a Canadian organization, which Mm -hmm. until the last year with What's happened up there with the truckers and all of that. Canada up until the last year has felt like this amazing, like <laughs> civically healthy, socially um, just sensible country that is often playing missionary to me in my <laughs> in American for their
0: context. Kindness and niceness.
2: <laughs> their politeness, yeah, sometimes passive aggression too, I must say. But um, though that's not true with Cardis, which his comment. But but um, I'm struck by how when I speak, like I work with people. Canadians who are very morally fluent—they have a moral view of policy. They—they uh, they like they have they have a certain view of human flourishing that affects their advocacy on on stuff related it's to their family, and education, and end of life care. It—I mean, they are Christians, but they engage public life in a very pluralist, sort like of principled pluralist way. So they're sort of engaged, and I think as I have watched them conceive of their broader democratic experiment and they're kind of, I don't know, would Canada call itself a republic? No, because it's a (laughs) commonwealth still. But they think of, there's an element of pragmatism I notice when they talk about their politics. And in the American context, you know, obviously it's now well-known politics has sort of become our religion. But there's there's something baked into the American experiment as fundamentally an idea and a moral idea that was sort of hypocritical from the very outset, um, that or sort of marred by hypocrisy. You could argue, and maybe that's chronological arrogance to say that now. But I, mm-hmm. you know, I I think when you're saying some citizens are only two thirds of a person, or right, <laughs> it's, right. It's, it's it's it feels like fairly, um, you know, in our current moral um, age, it, I, I think it's very uncontroversial to say there was something, um, there was something very choosy about these otherwise beautiful moral ideals at the founding. So you feel this, um, I think part of the passions is we have like lost all of our fluency in mm-hmm. our moral categories, so in our public discourse. Um, and yet the subconscious passions behind what is America? Where should we go? What is it? Not just for me, but for all, what is the common good yeah. in this country? It's, it's so, um, morally loaded. Like there's something more here than almost than any other country on earth because, uh, technically speaking, we weren't founded on, you know, we weren't founded on bloodline. We weren't yeah. founded on, it's an uh, idea. uh, sort of a It's an idea and it's a moral idea. Um, and so, so I think there's something there. And then the other thing I'll say, I'm a little rambling <laughs> with this answer, but the other thing I'll say is, um, I, as someone who cares a lot about social health and civic health, and I think a lot about how institutions... You know I'm aware of all of our our warfare that that happens very easily on Twitter, that happens on our cable news shows, that is increasingly happening around our dining room table, tables in our families, certainly on our school boards, um, but and at work. Um, but I have until very recently cared, and I, th- I have thought, and I think I still think this is the wise way to go. I'm I just think so much of that warfare is a waste of time because it's not happening in the proper places. It's not happening in the right containers. Um, so I think a lot about, we need to, how do we reconfigure our institutions to do the work of confession and atonement when required? How do we reconfigure our institutions, including those that are not mm-hmm. religious to do that moral work that is clearly, mm-hmm. um, unsatisfied in, in our larger conceptual, uh, like tribal cultural <laughs> warfare. Um, and I still think, it's there's something about that. But I recently, um, actually just three or four weeks ago, I participated in what I would call a fairly scar-laden and frankly scarring um, pilgrimage through the deep south of the U.S. And it was sort of tracing a, a four-centuries-long journey from New Orleans to to the Whitney Plantation, which is one of the few plantations that really um, kind of makes the slave narrative. It's a sort of protagonist. Um to Jackson, Mississippi, to Selma, to Montgomery, Alabama. And it's just, you know, it's just one of those experiences that bruises and remolds you and, uh, and has sort of put a foil to my own vocation or my own sense that I need to always be caring about the conditions within which we have these hot debates. And I'm someone who moderates a lot of public conversations around race, around the call of justice, around sort of economic development, all these things. And I, and there was without, Going into all of it, there was something about this trip and retracing a historical path that lands at, you know, the fairly well-known um, Equal Justice Initiative of Brian Stevenson mm-hmm. fame. Um, there was something, and then it was a very racially mixed group that went down together. There was something about seeing the, like, um, consistent c- uh, commitment to truth-telling that was not fun truths, ugly truths, all of us feel somewhat implicated, some were victims of it, that... I think I, I feel this, uh, tension in myself right now in my own vocational responsibilities as someone trying to steward the kind of public Mm, conversation mm, that could mm. not just expand people's imaginations, but like deepen their virtue and possibly when appropriate persuade them, uh, towards deep goods and deep truths. Um, I, I, I'm in this tension myself of, um, truth and quote justice in this fullest conception against sort of over and against, um, institutional health. Like there's, there's, there's times when you talk about the prophetic voice, there are times when you need to be impatient Mm. and there are times when you quote unquote do have to speak truth to power. And, and it, and it, and I think I've been in a mode, especially since the summer of 2020 of being cautious around some of those voices that seem overly self-righteous or that seem too impatient or, you know, the, the cliche in the racial context is like, why are we all Malcolm X? Where's the MLK spirit? You know, but I think I feel humbled recently and I'm just wrestling. And so I, I, I mentioned my vocational struggle between our is, um, when do you discern the 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 call of the hour yeah. of of a certain form of truth telling, and when do you tend the garden within which truth can actually be heard and absorbed and cha- and, and and be transformative, um, and cause ultimately amazing social change in a redemptive direction? Yeah. Uh, I I don't quite have answers to that, but I feel something in my own struggle is emblematic of. Um, sort of a larger American struggle we're at, though I would largely say um, I still think that as a country we've just, we have totally stopped caring about um, sort of the fabric of our institutions that can actually enable the kinds of conversations everyone seems to want to be having on a mass scale um, unproductively. I wish we would l- care a little bit more about smaller scale, more meaningful pedagogies that yeah. allow yeah. us to actually make progress on the um, some of the most beguiling issues well, of the day. Now,
0: as a journalist, I mean, that is a prophetic profession, if you will. I mean, that's one of the main things you do, call people out, hold government accountable, etc. But I want to go to the Curtis, uh company. I want to go to the comment workroom. And I loved how you said uh, the impatient times and the prophetic voice. And um, where at work on a daily basis do you see... Uh, that which you do prophetically in journalism gets really small and deep in relationship. Have you seen that work out with some of your co-workers?
2: Oh, interesting. Um, like kind of where the rubber meets the road. Yeah, and- <laughs> yeah, Yeah. I do
1: think with our audience, that's going to be a pretty wide range. There's going to be a lot of questions about Okay, well, what are the practical implications of this?
2: Yeah, um, oh, that's a great question. Um, so there's a, there's a bunch of things going on. So I'm 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 kind of a funky worker, I guess, in the sense that um, I have a team, and I have tried to establish a fairly a very joy filled, um, rambunctious mildly family reminiscent in its flavor, kind of a culture and we're not very big where we can range depends on the day between six and 12 people. And then we're, we're cradled within this larger think tank that has, it's also kind of overarching canopy of a culture CARDIS, the think tank that publishes us. That's about over 30 people now, I think. Um, so again, not, not huge, which is helpful. Um, and then I have also, you mentioned breaking ground. That was a project that was attempting to establish a much broader mm-hmm. ecosystem with partner institutions, donors, you know, and that's a, that's kind of a different way of leading when you are not necessarily organizationally accountable within, like, I can't fire any of these partners, but their participation is, is vital our- mm-hmm. to a product. Um, so I mentioned those cause I want to, there are two different dynamics. Um, and I think in an increasingly networked age, we probably deal with these dynamics. Um, so in the kind of more cohesive, culture of, of say comments team, a, you are hiring very, I mean, you were going through a rigorous process when you're choosing who is going to come into this shared labor. So I'm not looking for people that agree with me on, on Uh every issue, but I am looking for a spirit of, I mean, I do think if you're in this case, you know, we are rooted in 2000 years of Christian social thought as a, as a publication. And therefore our team has to be I am looking for a certain kind of disposition, um, a certain way, you know, this is now a Eugene Peterson line, but um I think a lot about that very famous line from Jesus, you know, I'm the way, the truth and the life. And I feel like I grew up in a generation that cared a lot about the truth and I still care very much Mm. about the truth and the life, but there's something about God is a God of adverbs. And there's something about the way in which this, a way of seeing a way of engaging. So I, I try to surround myself on my team with not everyone is going to, when it comes to the quote, prophetic they're not going to emphasize necessarily the same issues I want to emphasize. And part of that is contextual. Part of that is geographic. Um, but there is a sense of deep commitment to the vulnerable, uh, that we all share. Um, I think deep patience before complicated, s- complicated experiences and actually complicated mm. truths. Um, and I think a willingness to have some friction internally, a willingness to have debates in good faith. And that's where I mentioned the family rambunctiousness element that is helpful for these, um, you know, I mean, I, I, I'm, you've oh, crafted a
0: culture in which that yeah. degree of, uh, tension is, is a good thing. Not everybody has that, but like you said earlier, when you've tilled the soil, you know, what can be absorbed.
2: Yeah, I th- I think that's right, and there is, um, you know, you're looking for, I'm I'm looking to be surrounded in my work environment right now, and this is a luxury in many ways. But I'm looking to be surrounded by kind of Galatians five fruit of the mm-hmm. spirit, all of the, all of every single sure. fruit, um, and there so that because it it draws forth hopefully the same in me, mm-hmm. and it and it shines a mirror to my own you, failures, and I, even as, as a leader, leader you, you kind that of to learn. It. Yeah, you try to, you try to. And again, I'm not alone. I am kind of surrounded by a broader organization that shares all all of this. So I get that gets all reinforced, but yes, I think I, I I do have to set that tone. Um, and, and sometimes I have to make a hard call if there's like, oh, and this is too woke or, oh, this is, you know, whatever the thing may be in a current moment, you know, there are moments you just make it. I just have to make a judgment call, um, depending on, uh, the integrity say of the writer and the story they're trying to tell uh, because there are certain audiences we actually need want and need to reach and compel their trust. Um, so there's always there's all these kind of reasons that come that, that go on. Um, and then I would say, in in any kind of more collaborative work I've done with other institutions, with other powers that be, there has been, uh, you know, it's just been a really tricky time. There's so much suspicion around words these days. Like what, you know, you'll, you'll use one word and people will think, Oh,
0: "Oh, you're,
2: you know, you're so CRT or, you know, and everyone, it seems so sensitive. (laughs) Yeah. Um, and that's part of why I try, that's part of why I believe so strongly in the power of story. Cause it can kind of cut through a lot of just the, um, the touchiness. a lot of the moral formulas and touchiness. If you can get concrete and like right. drive a narrative forward that can surprise you and mm-hmm. disarm you. Um, but I have been in some situations and I probably shouldn't get too specific, but I have been in some situations the last couple of years where there's been not just strong, criticism of the way a certain kind of public conversation was framed but there's been you know well I can no longer be part of this this is because of suspicions or discomfort with assuming I'm coming perhaps from like a political perspective or have some agenda and those are I mean I think those are things as as when you when you feel called to repair a breach or you know you of course you kind of get hit oh, from sure. all <laughs> you get it from sure. all extremes right right well thinking about the
1: non-prophetic vocations. I'd love to get your thoughts on, um, you know, how do we how do we speak truth? I think about um, Spurgeon's label for David, and particularly in the Psalms, where Spurgeon talks about David having a holy confidence um, about who God is and who He is. And I would love to hear your thoughts about how do you cultivate. A holy confidence, so that folks would be inspired to to speak truth, and would be patient to appreciate the timing, the context, uh, and have it all wrapped up in the fruit of the spirit.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think you know, not to sound like Sunday school here, but it has certainly been true in my own life and. Um I I just think number 1 is prayer like I I just think there is an element of praying daily that God would give you I think gentle encouragement and eyes wide open to hear the pain points in people around you and to um you know I I I remember there have been so many jobs in the past where I don't necess- I don't pray for opportunities to evangelize but I pray to be the sort of person that is ready to love in uncomfortable situations um whether that you know whether someone is facing a moral dilemma or whether there is um I mean so much happens sometimes by like I, I think virtues of omission like refusing to gossip there's there's but there's sort of a level of um please be on my shoulder lord mm-hmm. like there is there there is a each one of these human beings, I am work and I'm thinking of like, you know, I, I realize every job doesn't, isn't surrounded by human beings, but most are uh, other people. Um, you know, each one of these is like a precious creation and I'm, I must, I'm here for, I'm here for a reason and I'm to sort of manifest, um, your, your way of being. So I just think prayer is just like a, a daily drumbeat of awareness, um, mm-hmm. awakening. And then I, you know, I, I think there is um, a way to speak truth that is leading in the form of questions. Um, you know, I, I spend some time since I've really gone back through all my Ignatian exercises, but I do think there's something to um, listening deeply to the voice of peace and contentment and uh, versus blame, self-righteousness, pride, scapegoating, one-upmanship. Um, and there are ways to navigate distasteful behaviors in another person by way of kind of a, a certain kinds of questions that would, might cause them to self-excavate or like, or empty out an, a moral path they might be considering. Um, so I think, yeah, I I, I prefer the invitational um, conscience, conscience tapping approach versus the preaching Hallmark card approach.
0: Yeah. The asking <laughs> um, questions.
2: The Yeah. Yeah. Asking questions. And I, and I think, you know, we all have different ways of, you know, I come from a musical background. I didn't mention that earlier, but I like grew up very much as a, as a serious pianist. And I think we each come to ways in which we understand what the beautiful life is. And there's something about um, engaging with anyone you work with, with sort of, not a Pollyanna-ish, like, um, cotton candy laden, like style, but, but yeah, nostalgia, but there's a way of, of, um, painting a more beautiful picture and being vulnerable with your own longings and being vulnerable with your own losses and your own failures actually. And that doesn't, again, that doesn't work on Twitter. I think as soon as you do that on Twitter, you're like Achilles heel is widely exposed. But in incarnate context, um, I think the human spirit, any human spirit, unless they're like a sociopath, yeah. um, they respond to that. And there's and reciprocity. I love that. Built.
0: The prophets, even in scripture, were prophesying through their vulnerabilities and their failures as much as anything. And we yeah. hear a prophetic voice at work and we think of that angry finger pointer. And yet God's truth can be spoken to others and people in power through vulnerability and honesty. Yeah. Mm.
1: That's great.
0: And thank you. I mean, such, such good word on uh, not only this concept in our lives, but how you're helping to lead an institution. So our common good is, is, is stronger for it.
2: Thank you. Thanks for having me. And thanks for the encouragement of, both reading, comment, and um, I think the kinds of questions you're asking, I'm just very encouraged someone is asking these because there are all these debates right now. Well, you've probably seen some essays that have gone viral the last few days yeah. on Twitter, or uh, you know, around like winsomeness and all, all these old, you know, these words that were used in the mid 2000s around proper Christian witness and quote unquote the prophetic yeah. voice. And is that really what's needed now? And it can be discouraging and actually a bit confusing, maybe in a healthy way, to like feel like. Um, the way of engaging lovingly in the world is too Mm. weak. And when I hear that criticism, um, I, you know, it's, it's, all of this is context specific, but uh, it, I'm sort of like, I feel like you're making a mistake as, you know, a mistake as old as time, you know, that that we suddenly need to grasp power to do what God needs in the world. It's just never been the way it's always been by dying. Mm. So anyways, mm. I didn't, Powerful. I know you're wrapping no, up, but I'm just <laughs> glad you're asking what you're asking because uh, it makes me feel less alone. Oh, great.
0: <laughs> Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Uh, friends. I want to encourage you again to check out Anne's latest book with a bunch of other great partners, Breaking Ground, Charting Our Future in a Pandemic Year, as well as the whole Person Revolution podcast. Give us a commercial, Anne. What do you address on your podcast?
2: We uh, go through so comment addresses themes quarter to quarter, and so the podcast is kind of the doer accompaniment to those themes. So this past spring or this winter, we looked at all things gift. What would it look like if more of our institutions and our own selves were to operate like all of life is gift? If we really believe that's true, and so we look at we in that in that case, we I interview. All sorts of often institutional leaders who are modeling that in, in pretty entrepreneurial ways. You kind of get a flavor for how does this work out in real time?
0: I mean, her, her vision for the good and the beautiful, I mean, it, it's good stuff.
1: It is, and it's so deeply ingrained and very personal to her. She's not just doing a job. I, the one thing, and I think it's really important for all of us to remember, is she is talking at a really high level. And, um, we don't need to be afraid of that. And one of the things that we're going to do for our listeners is that there will be an exercise, that will a link you can click onto in the story notes, and we're going to get real practical in there. Well, We'll break some of this down. We'll ask you to reflect on a couple of things. And so it's important for us to understand the overarching big ideas. I would agree. Um, but... Even though it's at a high level, Case, you got to tell me what your thoughts are. There were just so many.
0: Well, first on that, the the spiritual discipline and the exercise we put with each episode. I mean, everything we do at the Collaborative has got to shape the heart and the head. So I hope that y'all have been going to the show notes at each episode and, and doing these exercises. But I took away, my goodness, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine things very pragmatic ways of being prophetic at work that she spoke to. Um, That um, prayer is a daily drumbeat is what she said. And so if I'm going to speak truth, boy, I need to be in that dialogue with the Lord. And we see the prophets in scripture. I mean, their prayer lives, their conversations with God are so electric and alive. You got to have that. Second, um, gently shed light. It can be a gentle word of truth when you're, asked about your faith at work, or you see something that is just so against God's design or desire. Um, lead with questions. So good. I notice a lot of my coworkers do that. And the leading with questions is a non-aggressive way of putting out there a concern. Um, that balance of impatience and patience. And the Ecclesiastes, the author tells us, I mean, there's a time for both. That wasn't that good.
1: That was great. That was great. And, you know, I think when we hear speak truth, we often forget and love, Mm. the other part of that verse. And the and love, patience is a part of that. Mm. Uh, Because so often we're impatient and we think, whoa, if we don't say it right now, then we've missed the opportunity. Love is patient. Love is kind. Yes.
0: Well, and that goes to another one here. Discernment that mm. you can really mess up a china shop if you just go in with guns blazing. Boy, my um, illusions there are building. But if you're, <laughs> I mean, you've got to have a discerning heart. And I think that's where that daily prayer drumbeat allows you to know. Uh, and that goes to the next one. If, if the truth is absorbable. I mean, I know there are some colleagues that I can be more forthright with because they're at a certain maturity level or they have the ears to hear. And but you gotta be able to judge, is the ground tilled? Is it is something absorbable? Well,
1: and we need to be asking ourselves, what are we missing if we're not willing to listen? You know, because we we worship a God of economy and he uses all kinds of people to hone and consume the dross of my heart. You
0: don't mean financial economy. No. <laughs> you mean by that?
1: I mean that God uses all things. He doesn't waste things. You know, my experiences at work, my experiences with coworkers, those are not wasted. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, And so we just, you know, she also talked about this idea of embodied wisdom. Well, if we're not praying, if we're not mindful of the fruits of the Spirit, if we're not patient, if we're not all these things you were just talking about, we... We cannot embody wisdom because embodied wisdom is a gift from the Lord, and we have to be receptacles that are open to that.
0: And then this being vulnerable. Yeah. I I would challenge listeners, think about the most appropriately vulnerable person you know and the power that comes through sharing one's vulnerabilities that then points to a greater hope and a greater redemption. That's a great way to point towards truth. And that and I, that dawned on me because when you talked about uh, the listening, hey, what if there's a prophetic word coming to you, a word of truth yep. that we need to right, hear? Right,
1: right. And that's what I was meaning. I didn't say that very well, yeah. but yeah, that's exactly right.
0: Actually, and I've been meaning to talk to you about... Um, <laughs> maybe this isn't the environment. A
1: list of things. This is no, not Carson, the
0: environment. What do you feel when you... <laughs> <laughs> hey, it was in form of a question, right? <laughs> right? Well, friends, thank you for being with us. Uh, this has been good stuff. And I may have to go listen to this one a second time to uh, process. And hey, go get a subscription to Comet Magazine. It is a gift we give our Gotham Fellows when they finish their year with us in the Gotham Fellowship. And it's a it's a powerful word. You're a big fan, right, Crossland?
1: I am. I have so eliminated a number of things that I read, but I read Comment Magazine. It is worth the time.
0: Friends, thank you for joining us. Bye-bye. We believe strongly that great conversations can stir hearts and minds. To further encourage this, we've included a link in the show notes to a spiritual formation exercise related to today's discussion. Help us spread the word about Nuance, like the show, share, and subscribe so others can engage. Nuance is a production of The Collaborative, the faith and work ministry of First Presbyterian Church of Orlando. Nuance is produced by Candid Goat's PJ Weary and edited by Zach Baldwin. Music composed and performed by Fletcher Wilson. Nuance is made possible by the generosity of the Eleanor and T.W. Miller Jr. Foundation. For more episodes, visit CollaborativeOrlando.com, our YouTube channel named The Collaborative Orlando, or wherever you get your podcasts. To learn more about our three different fellowships, vocational guilds, and other programs, to subscribe to our newsletter, our bi-monthly blog, visit us online and join us on social media. On behalf of Crossland Stewart and myself, thanks for joining us. And remember that most of life is not black and white, but rather lived in the nuance.